I said, empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless, like water. It's about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. Join movement expert Aaron Alexander as he dives into the minds of the foremost innovative healthcare thinkers and movement masters on their approach to optimal health and wellness. Align Podcast. Welcome back to the Line Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander. Today's absolutely beautiful episode. I got to have someone I've been following for quite a while now, Mr. Rolf Potts. He has been... Uh, Oh man, I don't know how many copies of his book it's sold, but uh, it's definitely all over the world. Uh, Vagabonding, one of the one of the most popular books around in the realm of travel, and um, just this concept of leaving our lifestyle that we've become so accustomed to. Detribalization is what Joe Campbell would call it. Starting to recognize that we are a product of our culture, and uh, it will behoove us to step outside of that box and kind of have a little reflection of what the heck is going on inside this thing. His book recently had a reinsurgence from uh, Tim Ferriss. Has, it's like one of his favorite books or one of his most influential books. So he's been spreading all around. And uh, yeah, Rolf is all over the place. So it's a really fun conversation. I hope you guys enjoy. And so I remember like my first week in Korea and I'm standing there in a, a mixed group of, of, you know, like Americans and Canadians and Koreans. And one of the Koreans says, well, um, something about that foreigner over there and i'm looking at the koreans <laughs> because it had never occurred to me that that <laughs> that uh i would be a foreigner thank you so much for tuning in to the website aligntherapy.com a-l-i-g-n therapy.com on there you can uh, get yourself hundreds of videos in self-care and functional movement um, coming up soon we are going to be having a five-day movement makeover so we break down your home your office your car how to functionally move throughout all of these environmental situations and also break down the foundational movements that everyone needs to have so that is coming soon here in the next week we'll be having that thing up so hope you guys tune into that check that out on the website um, quotes that we have for the day comes from Mr. Bruce Lee, one of my absolute favorite human beings on this earth, uh, or, you know, under the ground at this point. Uh, it is, I fear not the man who has practiced 10,000 kicks once, but I fear the man who has practiced one kick 10,000 times. It's pretty, pretty good thought to ponder on. I'm sure you guys don't need any deciphering of that. You all get that. Um... Thank you so much for giving us a shout out on iTunes and and dropping reviews on there. They are so helpful for the podcast, for spreading it, and also just getting giving us feedback and support. So if anybody leaves a review on iTunes, we will send you out a box of Four Sigmatic Mushrooms. Just um, if we read your review in the intro, shoot us a message on social media and we'll get you a box of mushies. Um, Thanks so much. Last thing for utilizing the Amazon affiliate link on the right-hand side bar of the podcast page at aligntherapy.com slash podcast. Uh, anytime you click on that link, bookmark that thing, purchase anything on Amazon, take 7% out of the Amazon piggy bank and drops it into the Align podcast. So uh, super helpful, easy, cheap, free way to support this podcast. All right, I think we 
are ready to go. Um, I'll be teaching a couple workshops down in San Diego at the Low Carb Summit. If you guys are going to be out there, hope to look forward to seeing you there. And then as well in Oregon, the Oregon Eclipse Festival. If you guys are going to be up around there, I highly recommend checking that out. I think tickets are probably sold out at this point. But um, I will be teaching a couple workshops there as well. So all that is coming up in the next coming month, month and a half or so. So look forward to seeing you guys out and about. Thank you so much for tuning in. Here we go. Back to the podcast with Mr. Rolf Potts. Align Podcast. I know. We uh, Welcome to my friend's office studio place. I just did a podcast with, uh, do you know a woman called Jill Miller? Have you ever heard of her before by chance? She's like a yoga no. tune-up and whatever. She's... Then ring a bell. All right, never mind. I'm at her place right now. We just recorded a podcast, oh. and I wasn't able to make it back to my studio, so um, I just stayed here. So, <laughs> and so, hi, hi from here. Are you? Uh, where are you located at right now? Are you at your home in the states, or? You're... Yeah, I'm. I'm at home in. Uh, I, I was in Idaho the last few days, but I'm back home in Kansas. I have a place in rural, rural North Central Kansas, and Red. it's a sunny day, almost hot here. Mm. Which works for me. That makes me feel good. So, what are you up to these days, man? You're you're like I, I've listened to heaps and heaps of your podcast interviews. I've read I've read the the Vagabonding book, and uh, it's interesting. Like, I wonder sometimes with the interviews if you get tired of asking the same consistent questions around it. It's like, dude, I wrote this book forever ago, and you're still asking me these same questions. Does that happen at all, or do you feel how do you feel about that? <laughs> Not really. Actually, I, was, I, I do a lot of speaking events, and I had one in Boise over the weekend. In fact, I ended up speaking three different times. And people ask me the same question, but I, I don't. I mean, I, it's just something that I enjoy talking about. And it's, and it's fun that the book has reached so many people after all these years. Mm-hmm. Um, and one fun thing is that usually um, when I'm doing a, um, uh, an interview of any substance, I end up, you know, I go back to a lot of talking points, but those are important because it's the basics and some people might be coming, you know, might have never heard of, of my book. Yeah. But then also sometimes I, I find myself uh, thinking out loud, you know, sort of articulating things. Right. I mean, thinking with your mouth shut is one thing, but then sort of talking and thinking at the same time, sort of your brain works in a different way and you end up saying things that you hadn't thought before. So, yeah. um, I've done a number of interviews today, and, and, and some of them have been just good ones where suddenly I'm, I'm thinking out loud in, in a good way. Uh, so usually it's a combination of that. Like I, Actually, I love going back to the talking points just because I'm a true believer in that vagabonding philosophy that I wrote all those years ago. Um, but then, in fact, I think I finished the book. I, I turned it in almost exactly 15 years ago, and then it was published the, early the following year. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, I love I love talking. So don't so don't hesitate to ask something obvious or something with an obvious answer because I'm happy to address sure. it. Well, one of the big things that I find interesting about traveling is witnessing body language and the way that different people express themselves in different parts of the world. You know, is that something that you have? I mean, you subconsciously have, whether you realize it or not. But is that something that you've you've witnessed in different places of just the like the movement variance in various cultures? Not consciously. And of course, now that you mentioned that, I'm thinking back, I'm, yeah. I'm trying to rewind all of these experiences. I think, I, I think one becomes a little bit cognizant of body language just in situations, uh, you know, that might be dangerous. You know, there's, there's certain um, yeah. defense mechanisms we have. But, you know, on the road, that's fairly rare that you're that, you're that tuned in to, uh, to safety-related body language. Yeah. Um, but... Yeah, I don't know if it. I don't. I don't know if you found 
in your own experience that like what people wear affects how they carry themselves body language wise, you know, just sort of in Middle Eastern countries where men wear jalabas, that's a different piece of clothing. You know, that's not two tubes over your legs. That's this flowing man dress, which is kind of cool. Actually. I remember I almost got one tailored for myself when I was in Egypt years and years ago, just cause I thought they looked pretty cool with like a suit jacket. Mm-hmm. Like if I ever won an Oscar, I'd wear a jalaba. I mean, I got over that. I got over that, uh, desire. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, you know, I can't a- answer that authoritatively cause I never really considered it until just now, but I would suspect that there are culturally specific ways that influence how and gender specific ways that uh, affect our body language culturally. So. Yeah. Yeah. I had a, I was out in Morocco last winter and I got a jalaba to, uh, as like my surf post surf, um, oh. kind of like cover myself up. And so, so you're already familiar with them being like very anti naked nudity, you know, in the, in, in public, you know, and I think that that there is a really interesting point with that where it's like your clothing, I wasn't even thinking about this, but the clothing affects the way that you feel about yourself, which affects the way that you present yourself. Right. So if your clothing is like I'm spiritual, you know, whatever, or I am covering up because it's part of my culture, then very likely that'll cause you to be a little bit more maybe closed with the shoulders and maybe, you know, you're not going to move so boisterously like a lot of like annoying Americans might, you know. So, yeah. Well, actually, I just realized a place where I noticed body language and it was Brazil, which um, Mm -hmm. Brazil sort of has a reputation. I mean, reputations and stereotypes can be annoying but it sort of has a reputation for beautiful women but when i went there it wasn't like if you put brazilian women in a police lineup you know next to other women of the world they might not be that remarkable but they they have such a confident walk in brazil i've seen it in france too i once said that um uh france had the most beautiful homely women in the world because just because of the way they carry themselves and and so that's interesting you know i i don't know I presume they're fairly, maybe not France, but Brazil is fairly patriarchal, but somehow there's a, there's a certain body centered confidence with which women carry themselves and it's noticeable. And it's a kind of beauty that isn't tied into body dimension, space of the eyes apart, you know, type factors that are usually connected to beauty, but it's sort of an an attitudinal beauty that I noticed in, uh, in those countries, those two countries specifically. Yeah, sorry, I got a plane flying over right now. You're, I'm sure you're here. I'm sure you're hearing that. My deepest yeah, apologies. Yeah, no, I thought I thought it was a plane or somebody flushed the toilet. So. Yeah, no, I've I've actually I I flushed the toilet to drown out the plane, so you're getting all of it. Um, but yeah, so there's an interesting, I guess you could call it a study. I don't know. A fella he traveled around all these different countries, and the thing that he was specifically looking at was the amount of contact between different cultures you know and so you see like you go to brazil and it's lots of contact you go to spain it's lots of contact you go to the united states eh, not so much you go to england maybe less you know and it's it's i think there's there's is that something that you've witnessed in various places like like in parts of europe you think everybody's flirting with you you know it's like no we just communicate with our hands on your arm right yeah no actually that's something that I mean, it's it's even regionally specific in the United States, and I come from the Midwest, and not just the Midwest, but the Great Plains, which is a you know has a lot of Northern European immigrant populations. Um, I have a lot of German, Scottish, and English blood myself, but I just grew up in an environment, or maybe even in a family, that stands a little bit further apart from each other, yeah. and there's sort of this nervous moment. Um, gosh, I remember like going to West Coast or East Coast when I was younger. West Coast is a little 
huggy uh, East Coast is a little kissy hello. <laughs> and I just never knew when it was appropriate or not appropriate because by Midwestern standards, you just you just shake hands or I mean, it's, it's much more formalized. It's sort of like being in Sweden or Germany or someplace that is not a touch the person on the elbow as you talk to them, you know, whereas Spain or Italy might be a seemingly more flirtatious place in uh, in that regard. Yeah. And so it, there's sort of this discord. I think um, there, there, there's also this Midwestern self-awareness, like Minnesota nice or whatever, you know, you're supposed to be aware of what the other person's desires are. And so it's just, to this day, it's hard to tell, do I hug? Do I kiss hello? Do I not? Do I shake hands? And so it's funny. So I've noticed that as someone who comes from a part of the country where people stand a little bit further apart, where people are less likely to to kiss or hug hello. And so interestingly, I sort of like those warmer cultures where it's, yeah. you don't have to worry about it because people are already leaning in to kiss you hello and it's not a problem, you know? Yeah. Whereas uh, in Northern Europe, which is probably a little bit closer to, to you know, the Midwest where I'm from, uh, it's, it's less fun because it's, it's, more, it's more normal. So I, I think that can be a fun part of, of identifying difference as you travel. You yeah. know, it's, it's just sort of seeing seeing how that works. And I mean, there's there's sort of three, two, three and four kiss hello cultures um, yeah. in, in different parts of the world. Uh, and then, yeah, no, it's 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 interesting. I hadn't thought of that. Uh, you know, your your question was was fairly objective. But then when I'm thinking about specifics, it's it's actually quite common and um, just a part of an instinctive part of, uh, being in a place, I think. Yeah. And then that's the whole, you know, fitting into a place. Like I think that oftentimes you see Americans tend to stand up, like stand out like sore thumbs more than a lot of places, you know, and it's because they're kind of, they almost have like this insulation around them oftentimes, depending upon the American, you know, where it's like it's their, their, their culture, they're very indoctrinated into this specific culture and we're raised with like, we're number one, you know, so hmm. taking that cultural mask off when you arrive in a new place is like, why? I would I I'm number one <laughs> you, know? Right. you know is that something that you do you could you spot different cultures at all is that something yeah you know I think sometimes um the American abroad will behave according to where he is abroad you know an American in Cancun is going to act different from an American in Luang Prabang who's going to act differently than an American in Amsterdam uh and I think that that's that's common too. I think when anywhere you see people who travel in large packs, there's certain parts of Spain that's going to be full of Brits, and they're going to be full of you know drunk Brits, and and they're going to have a certain swagger, a certain nationalistic swagger. Um, and and there are parts of the world. Uh, Amsterdam is probably included in that, in lots of places in Mexico where Americans are noisy pack animals, you know. Um, whereas in other parts of the world, I, I cut a lot of my travel teeth in Asia, and Asia is just it's hard to get a pack of big, dumb Americans across the Pacific Ocean. And so statistically, most of the Americans I met were pretty cool. And one nice thing about Americans is that we're sort of unpretentious and exuberant. You know, we can sort of be moronic and loud sometimes, but we're, we're friendly and we like to have fun. Uh, and so I found myself drawn towards Americans when I was in Asia because for the most part, they were just good company. You know, yeah. they, they didn't... I mean, sure, that there's, there's that America first attitude, but... Um, that can be internalized and, and that can be, um, I don't know. I, I just found Americans in Asia in particular conducted themselves pretty well. Yeah. Uh, 
in Southeast Asia, at least you get uh, the big, dumb Americans get replaced with big, dumb Australians because then it becomes, then it's like, it's easier for them. Like you just get out of high school and you move in droves to, you know, Bali or whatever it is because you're right across the the pond, which that's like the only, one of the only times where it's like, America's not that bad. (laughs) (laughs) You meet more sweet people out there with that. The, um, something that I've noticed with traveling is, uh, usage of headphones, you know? And so I, I, upon arriving in a new place, I'll notice headphones off because everything is like this symphony and I want to be alert and aware and cautious and like all these things. And then after X amount of days or weeks of being in a place, all of a sudden I'll start slipping back into kind of like muting out the world around me a little bit, you know? So is that something that you paid? I'm, I'm just, I'm just like relating like stories. I don't, is that something that you notice at all? Not as much. And I think in part because, um, having headphones as a part of my travel MO is only fairly recently, you know, um, pre smartphone. I, I just didn't, I guess there were, when I had an iPod back when iPods were a thing, I traveled with those sometimes. Um, but actually it's, it's been the podcast era since I've really become a sucker for having my headphones on in other places. I mean, years ago, I wrote an article about one of, one of the pleasures of travel being able to just stumble upon music and rediscovering it. Like, um, you know, just randomly hearing Johnny Cash in Syria or the Pixies in Egypt or, you know, even sort of hard to describe country music in India. And it's like, Oh wait, that's Emmylou Harris. And, um, I think before the iPod smartphone era, that was a thing that was possible. Basically your own music surprises you. You're in a country where there's no, you're not, you're listening to everything in Arabic or, or in, in, in Hindi or whatever. And then suddenly you hear a song in a very powerful way. And I think that that has diminished somewhat because our music is so portable that said, I was never really a soundtrack traveler. Like I was always very disciplined about not superimposing too much of my own music over a place. But I admit that podcast has changed that. I've just I've just become sort of a podcast addict, and I will multitask my travel with headphones sometimes. Yeah. But I think you, you touched on something important, which is you know the impressions of a place when you first get there. You know, and sight is something that we naturally associate with the exotic attributes of a foreign place, but sound smell is huge. Um, taste is sort of obvious. You know, we often travel through food, uh, but sound and sound and smell are, are, are huge. So I think it's, um, I don't fault people for being headphone oriented, but I think if you can discipline yourself from the headphones, then you'll, you'll be hearing the world in a, in a special way, you know? Uh Joe Campbell called it detribalization. Have you ever heard that term before? I know you've probably said it in different ways, but that one specific detribalization. Oh, detribalization. Yeah. That sounds vaguely familiar, but, um, so, so paraphrase that for me. Yeah. So the definition, so the, you know, the definition's kind of in, in the, in the, in the phrase or word itself, but you know, so it's like, we all come from a tribe, whether we realize it or not. Right. So I come from, you know, what you, you mentioned where you come from, like Midwest tribe. Right. So we, we shake hands, we stand at this distance, we listen to this music, you know, and that's very normal. That's what the rest of the world does. You know, when I found out that there's people that aren't like Christian as a kid, I just thought that that was like the craziest thing in the world. 
you know, and uh-huh. then you go to another place and all of a sudden you realize that I was in this special little niche of culture there and I'd been completely indoctrinated with all of that. And all these things that I thought were just the norm are actually very specific to this little niche that I, I, I sprouted out of. You know, do you, do yeah. you, is that something that you've kind of, I know, I mean, I know you have, is that, is there any well, kind of like moments that you've kind of like, yeah, huh? A great example of coming of detribalization for me was um, going to Korea and and sort of being considered a foreigner for the first time. Like I, <laughs> that concept of a foreigner was a non-American, and so I remember like my first week in Korea, and I'm standing there in a, a mixed group of of you know like Americans and Canadians and Koreans, and one of the Koreans says, "Well." Um, something about that foreigner over there. And I'm looking at the Koreans <laughs> because it had never occurred to me that, that, <laughs> that, uh, I would be a foreigner. And of course, of course it made sense at an intellectual level, but at an instinctive level, I had never been in a place where I was the foreigner. And so the Korean is talking about foreigners and I'm looking at the Koreans trying to figure out what he's, what he's talking about. And it was this, it was this, uh, moment of epiphany where I realized that I was the foreigner and, and it would be absurd uh, to think otherwise in a place like Korea. And so that was a very strong and memorable example of when, uh, when, when detribalization happened. Yeah. Uh, I, I'd imagine that dovetails with, with culture shock to a certain extent, um, which is something that, uh, I think that was defined in the fifties or sixties. Um, and it's just, I guess it's, it's a weird filter that, that superimposes itself on your experiences when you are outside of your tribe. Suddenly you're in this constant process of trying to figure out what's going on and, and all of the, maybe a lot of nonverbal cues are being missed as well as verbal ones. And it's a sort of, it's a kind of anxiety. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, thrill associated with, uh, traveling, uh, to new cultures, but then there's this anxiety, this culture shock anxiety, which I'm sure goes hand in hand with detribalization, hmm. which is part of the fun of travel, actually, you know, that, that suddenly you're forced to cope in a way that you can't really plan for. You can read about other cultures, but until you're there and making mistakes and experiencing it at a gut level, it's, it's something different. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I feel like it, travel or, or detribalizing or putting yourself, realizing that where you come from is actually special and different, you know, and, and kind of it, it allows it to re-enliven itself in a way, you know? So when you go to a new place, you see that it's kind of like, I find it to be almost like a, like a jumper cable for a car or something like that. Like it's easy to be, to, 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 to be dumbed out or mute, mute out your surroundings. Cause it just becomes very normal, you know, but when you come back, did you have any kind of like bringing those perspectives back from your journeys back into your, your town and kind of seeing it in a different way? Absolutely. Because I, I think if you're overseas for a long period of time, months or years, then, um, you know, your, your tribal barometer resets, you mm-hmm. know, and, and suddenly like I lived in Asia pretty much nonstop for two years, um, without really even visiting. I traveled around a lot inside of Asia, but I didn't visit non-Asian countries. And I remember coming back to Kansas in the middle of the country and going to a Walmart or something and sort of feeling racism against white people. Like all of a yeah. sudden there just these big, tall, fleshy people around me. And it was, it was just a weird thing where of course I was one of them, but it just, it was jarring. It was jarring in, 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 in a way 
that made no sense, but in, in a way, of course, made sense because I was used to being around people um, who, who were Asian in appearance and manner, and then suddenly um, there was just something really weird, and it was it was it was it was really close to racism. It was strange. I almost laughed out loud at myself when I realized what was going on. It, it was almost a sense of intimidation or something because I was just I'd become so comfortable being the only fleshy. Um, pasty guy in the room, uh, and and then suddenly I'm surrounded by people who more or less look like me, various iterations, and and I just had a a, a gut reaction to that, which was fun, which was fun. Um, I, I've never felt it the same way since, but it was pretty pretty funny moment. Yeah, yeah, I've I've heard uh, like deep deep depression being described, not as like feeling pain or or, or something like that, but more not feeling. You know, I, I think that that's something that we as at least Americans that are just totally inundated with kind of like the material will provide you happiness kind of thing, you know, mm -hmm. and getting away from some of those, I don't know, some of the more real components that actually make us feel, make us feel, you know, is that something that, that you have kind of witnessed at all, like enhancing feeling or is that a crazy question? No, I, I think, um, I've said this in, in the context, in different contexts, but we sort of have a very modern slash postmodern American life that's very compartmentalized. Mm. Um, and in a way, it's a cerebral life where we're having intimate conversations with people hundreds of miles away and we don't know the names of our next door neighbors. Um, and we're eating this delicious food that grew in a South American country a few weeks ago and has flown up to meet us. And, and so it's this world of abstractions, you know, yeah. um, and it's, I'm not, I'm not going to knock American life because it has a lot of advantages too. But then you go to another country where people are eating food that was grown within two miles and they know all their neighbors. And in fact, they always see all their neighbors. Um, then suddenly it's, I think sometimes this is erroneously attributed to, you know, idealizing the relative poverty of more traditional cultures. But I don't think that's what it is. I think we get a little bit sentimental and we, our hearts get filled in these places where life is a little slower and simpler because people have maintained these organic relationships. They haven't compartmentalized their lives. They aren't, mm. they aren't interacting with their friends through an electronic device. Um, and I'm sure that that comes with certain shortcomings, but as a traveler to get back into that and sort of, and sort of downshift the gear, your existential gear shift and just sort of let life come to you a little bit and be around people who allow life to come to them. It's a really important, um, perspective to have. And I think there's an emotional component to that. Um, and I think it makes you grateful when you travel and, and, and experience again at a gut level, these kinds of environments. Hmm. Psychogeography. Is that how you, mm. have you, that, that's something that I actually got from you that I was, so I was nearby you in France last winter and I was actually like skateboarding around and like hitchhiking and doing all like the kind of, you know, whatever, all the vagabonding-esque, you know, cliche vagabonding things. I was like, mm -hmm. I was doing that. And one of the things that you had kind of helped me with was just the concept of, of psychogeography. Is that what it's called? Is that the term? Yep. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. You know, and so just really getting super curious of the magic of everything, you know, and so can, can you break down into just like what, what that is and how just what that is? 
Yeah, I mean, it can be several things. And actually, psychogeography has a lot of historical roots in France, because in the 60s, they had this sort of radical movement called the Situationists, who were sort of avant-garde artists. And they had decided that life had become utilitarian. Instead of walking through the city on direct routes from point A to point B, they were going to engage in the derive or the drift, and they were going to drift through the city with no particular goals. Or, and psychogeography sort of has a game component to it, or it can, they were going to travel through the city from finding the color red or collecting or trying to find the next car with a license plate with the letter Z on it. Um, and it's funny that you mentioned skateboarding because skating, skateboarding can be a psychogeographical approach to the city, um, where instead of walking or taking tra- public transportation, you're going to skate across a place like Paris, and you're going to see it through that through that lens. Yeah. And I think it's a great way to get out of previous modes of being and seeing because suddenly you're interacting with other skateboarders and you have a common language of skateboarding with the French skateboarders and the Algerian French skateboarders and the and the Senegalese French skateboarders and the other foreign traveler skateboarders who are in the city. Yeah. And so I think that there's a certain parallel. I, uh, skateboarding can be a kind of psychogeography. Um, psychogeography is also tied into the, the another French idea, which is the flaneur, which is uh, even older than psychogeography. And it, and it is about walking through the city in search of experience and, 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 and seeking the smallest details of the city and the smallest moments of experience and letting that guide you and, and allowing yourself to get lost and see the city in a whole new way. Um, on my very first vagabonding trip, I decided uh, I was going through Texas and, and um, uh, I was going to stop in Houston. And I was thinking about Houston and I realized I didn't really know. There was nothing in Houston that I was really excited about seeing except fifth ward which is a part of houston that was sort of mythologized by a gangster rap group called the ghetto boys and so i realized that this my psychogeographical guidebook to houston was was gangster rap music and so i i I actually got a police ride-along in the city so i could um through um through fifth ward houston which you know by the by the edicts of gangster rap would, would seem a little bit strange, but it was interesting. I don't know. I, I, I think the reality of those parts of cities and even the reality of police life or the reality of on the ground life in a disadvantaged part of a city is different from all the stereotypes, like many travel things happen. And so using gangster rap as a, it just sounds absurd, but using gangster rap as a pretext to see Houston, I saw a very real and sort of chill, peaceful, fascinating part of Houston. And I tricked myself into it in using sort of a psychogeographical pretext. And so I think there's sort of a gamesmanship to psychogeography. You're finding ways, you're tricking yourself into seeing in new ways and visiting new aspects of places that might otherwise either be already familiar or have such a strong expectation that you're only seeing the expectation and not what's in front of you. So it's a fun concept. Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, depression is becoming the number one leading cause of disability. I I think globally, actually, as you say, United States. And I think that there is a real connection with a lot of things. One of which being, you know, the spread of technology. I think that affects the way that we move through the world, like our physical structures. We end up staring down in this depressed position into our cell phones and such. But another thing that I think is kind of a part of that is just this losing interest in 
in mm. in our psychogeography, <laughs> you know, losing interest in the magic of existence. You know, and that's why like psychedelics end up being, you know, they're being used as as um in like therapeutic settings now, MAPS Institute and such. And it's just re-enlivening that magic in your existence and recognizing that you will be dead at some point. You know, all of a sudden you wouldn't be so bored with the moment that you have. You know, is that is that does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, it, it really it, it does make sense, and I think it's this isn't a, this isn't an issue that you just solve. I, I think that you you approach um, as life progresses, you you have to develop new strategies for embracing uh, your surroundings and embracing life itself in a way that generates wonder and magic. I think when you're a little kid it's easy because everything is new. And, and you know, what do you do? You open the door and you run around outside and you invent all sorts of things for you to do. And, and, um, holidays and just like everything is, is, is imbued with magic when you're younger. And then you sort of get used to it. You, you can't, there's a certain inefficiency to, to, to the magic and wonder of life. And so you have to reinvent how to engage with it. And so, even even in travel, I, I think my early travels, I was so excited and, and so grateful to just be out on the road and having new experiences that those experiences were suffused with wonder when I was a young vagabonder. But as I've gotten older, simply being out there and, and being and experiencing and smelling and listening to a new place doesn't carry that, that same energy. So I, I, I sort of have to find ways, call them psychogeographical ways, to... Um, to experience a place. Yeah. Want to give a quick thanks to Four Sigmatic for supporting this podcast. They are a amazing company that infuses medicinal mushrooms into various different tea and coffee blends. You can also get mushrooms on them on their own. Uh, a really amazing product. I use it every day. Tim Ferriss, various different rad people have been getting down on this stuff. Get yourself 10% off at foursigmatic.com slash align. That's F-O-U-R sigmatic, S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C dot com slash align. Make sure to use the align code to get 10% off on that purchase. Thank you guys so much for tuning in and I hope you guys enjoy your tea and the rest of this podcast. Thank you so much. Yeah, there's a, a unnecessary fancy psychological term called self-efficacy theory that I just recently learned about. I've been enjoying thinking about it where, mm-hmm. you know, essentially we are, we kind of un, subconsciously fit ourselves into the, the, our own belief system, you know, of what we stand for and who we are and the culture we come from and like, you know, being, I'm a patriot, you know, whatever it may be. You know, Uh we have this mold of what we believe that we are and anything that starts to stretch us outside of that sometimes can be uncomfortable and we'll kind of like put the brakes on with that. And I I, I find with travel, it gives you this really nice opportunity to let go of the baggage that you might not want to hold on to and kind of like recreate yourself. You know, is that something that you've, have you witnessed any of that with yourself? Like every trip, it's kind of like, I can do a new version of Rolf or, you know what I mean? Yeah, to to an extent, to an extent I have. Um, and that's something I think, like a lot of people have pointed that out about travel. And like in a way, travel makes you a child again. You, you can't, you're at a place you can't speak the language. You're not really sure which way the cars are driving. And, and um, so there is a real freedom to test out different versions of yourself. Hmm. Um, and sometimes you fail, actually. Um, I, I went through 
uh, God, like nine years ago, I dyed my hair blonde and went to Brazil and tried to learn how to, how to, uh, samba dance nice. and it was a failure on every on every regard like i like <laughs> since the grunge years i wanted to have platinum hair and 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 just try something extreme well for whatever reason like i i dyed my hair 50 times and it was like scrambled egg yellow um <laughs> and uh so i went down to brazil and you know the brazilians didn't care i just sort of looked like this extreme weird guy um and then I, you know, I tried to embrace samba dancing, but I wasn't good. Like I sweat a lot. And so I'm in this humid country and I'm trying to learn the dance steps and I'm like soaking wet. And, um, but it was, it was, I think I learned something, even though I failed on every count, um, it, it was worth, it, it was worth that try. You know, it was, it was just a different lens of seeing myself. It was like just sort of knowing that, um, there's certain versions of myself that don't work. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah. It's not like every time I, I leave on a trip, I, I try out a new version of myself. Mm-hmm. But I think that's almost instinctive. I, I, I think. I mean, this, this even goes back to a lot. There, there's a strain. There's a high number of of really great female travel writing in the 19th century, and I think one reason why that's so, and people have said this, is that European societies were very restrictive for women. You know, it was very. Um, especially Victorian society, for example, there were all these rules on who you couldn't, couldn't, couldn't be and how you couldn't, couldn't think. And then you went to other countries, even ones, restrictive ones like Arab cultures, which also have a very strong division of genders, but they just sort of passed for men. They were able, they got a free pass. Mm -hmm. And so we think of this, sometimes we can think of this in a frivolous way, but this was a time where women got the chance to be fully themselves. They weren't societally restrained because of their gender. And it resulted in some really awesome travel writing. And so I think that it's a starting point for everyone. And there's there's certain repressions that, that we're all pushing up against, some societally um, uh, put upon us and some of which we put upon ourselves. Uh, and travel, even if we don't travel with the intent of throwing off those restrictions, sometimes we just slowly walk and slowly realize that nobody's keeping score. Nobody's watching and paying attention to, to who we are and we can try out parts of, we can dare ourselves into being and trying new things. Yeah. I think materials lock us into that self-efficacy theory thing, you know, as you have, I like to think of all of the material crap that I have in my house or my car or my life in general as being kind of like guests in my, in my, my, my house, my, my life house. You know, mm-hmm. and, and every guest has its own personality. You know, and there's like a documentary I recently saw called called Minimalism. You, you heard of that that one at all, or seen that? Minimalism. I've heard about it, but I haven't seen it. Yeah, one of the things that they talk about in there is like something like it's like a mock move out. You know, where you essentially are moving, you're pretending like you're moving. You know, and we get rid of all of this crap because I'm moving and I don't want to move it. You know, so you have to kind of liquidate your life and really find the valuable pieces that you have, and mm-hmm. what. I and a lot of people have found, I think, with that is just this this feeling of when you reduce the material weight, you energetically feel a little bit more light. Mm. You know, is there a is there a Japanese woman who's, who features in that? There's there's a Japanese woman who wrote a book about um, one's relationships with, with with what one owns. I do. Does that ring a bell for you? No. Okay. No, I've actually heard this through two different podcasts. I think Tim Ferriss interviewed her, but I haven't listened to it yet. And then I listened to the Script Notes podcast, which is a screenwriting content, uh, uh, podcast. And the host there, basically she says that 
and this is an extreme paraphrase, but everything you, these objects that you own have a certain energy and a certain purpose in your life. Yeah. And there's certain th- objects in your life that you should thank for what they've done and then, then say goodbye, yeah. basically. Is that uh, there's a reason certain objects entered your life and then once that reason has expired, it's, it's really not honoring the object to keep it around. And I thought, I'm, I'm going to have to explore this a little bit more. But I'm working on a new project, which is about souvenirs, um, which is part cultural history of souvenirs and part sort of um, existential philosophy of souvenirs. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really interesting because I think we, we naturally, as we travel, and of course souvenirs can come from non-travel environments, but as we travel... Um, we almost instinctively collect these objects that help, that, that serve several purposes. I mean, they, they, they narrate the journey when we get home, but they also narrate ourselves and they represent certain things to us. And, and it's just interesting. And I'm, I'm still working on this book and I'm, I'm actually on the last chapter where I make sense of this existentially where like, you know, this mask that I bought in Mongolia in the year 2001 had multiple purposes when I got it and then multiple purposes when I brought it home and it changes over time. Yeah. And I'm, I, I fully believe I, I, I want to explore this idea further that these objects have energy and then they have a personality, like you said, yeah. and that you come into a relationship with them and part of healthy relationships are sometimes saying goodbye or, or, or thinking of good ways to, to send an object off on its own traveling journey. Um, and this goes beyond uh, souvenirs. In, in a way, it feels like my travels. I'm sitting in my house right now, so I'm looking around. My travel souvenirs are in a relationship with other objects in my life that have arrived through non-travel reasons, and and it's really interesting. And I've I've been pretty good with minimalism, but I would like to explore. I, I even I feel like I want to have write a blog or, or or somehow use this as a creative idea of of honoring these objects by getting rid of them. I, it, it's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Pat- Patagonia does a good job with that. That's just as a, as a company, as a store, just throwing out that they, they're just, they're really good with reusing their clothes. So it's like, if we make okay. this, if we make this clothing, I'm not like sponsored by Patagonia or whatever, but if they, if we make this clothing, then at some point, if you don't like it, you can bring it back. If it's used, we'll like resell it. Like we built this jacket to last the rest of your life, essentially. You know, and culturally, we don't really have that belief. We're so fine with just throwing crap away or like you know, gathering materials because it's 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 temporary. We'll just throw it away. But really, putting a little bit more value into my pair of shoes, <laughs> you know, like these shoes that get me around the world, or like my 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 bag, you know, where was this made? I know that that you know where the fabric came from. You know, is that something that's that's evolved for you at all? Just awareness of like where stuff comes from. Yeah, I mean, I mean that's hard. Um, just because it, things are so globalized now, yeah. uh, and I think the idea that we just throw things away, that we sort of objects be, have become more disposable, that's newer than we think. I mean, I remember being a kid, and there was a there was a store named Cloth World where women would go to buy cloth to sew clothes. This is in the 1970s, and um, by the late 1980s, that was a ridiculous thought because you could buy for less than a bolt of cloth, you could buy a Chinese-made T-shirt or whatever, mm-hmm. and you just bought it. It came in, in and out of your life, and it was it was no big thing. You know, my mom grew up the oldest of six kids, and when she got a pair of shoes, they went down the down the chain. You know, <laughs> um, in a way that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and so, that's that's interesting. I, I think going sometimes 
I'm not always cognizant of where what I own comes from, especially um, like uh, items I use a lot. Like I'm a big fan of Blundstone boots. Do you know Blundstones? No, I'm not. I'd love to check them out. They're like pull-on boots, and I actually got them in Australia when I was on magazine assignment in 2006, I think. And they're pull-on boots, and I, I bought them because they were cheap, but I've, I've worn them, and again, this is not an advertisement, but I've worn them um, almost every day since. And I was always so proud of how they were Tasmanian boots. They were, you know, they were founded in Tasmania. Well, after several years of wearing them, I realized that they're now manufactured in China, yeah. as so much is. Yeah. Um, and, and in fact, in researching my souvenir book, I've realized that there's a very strong relationship between souvenirs and China, whether manufactured souvenirs, um, and that it's just, it's just super cheap. I went to a souvenir vendors convention in Vegas last fall, and people are really trying to support the American souvenir market, but it's just hard to compete with China, who does who can do things on such a huge scale. But an advantage that travel has sometimes is that in a way it's time travel, almost like what I was saying before, you go to a place where you go to a town where people have a, a stronger relationship with their food and their neighbors. Um, and it's the same, I think it's the same way with objects. There's I, actually Chinese products or mass manufactured product products are, are saturating everywhere. Mm-hmm. But uh, you go to a place where it maybe is a little bit more like the 1970s, where people have a little bit more, they know how to mend their shoes and mend their clothes or make their clothes or, or, um, they have a guy down the street who, who manufactures plates or whatever. Um, and, and you, you come into a, a more complicated understanding, but also appreciation for that, you know, um, knowing how, where all that stuff fits and where it comes from. Yeah. The, the kind of visual that's coming up for me is, is the connection between the way that we treat our materials culturally and the way that we treat our relatives. Hmm. Yeah. You know, and so we're bred with it's it's fine, it's replaceable. You know, you get it, you throw it away. You'll get a new one, you throw it away. You know, and it's like that's our grandparents, that's our parents. <laughs> you know, yeah. we'll like throw them away in a retirement home. You know, you go to another a lot of places, it's like oh no no no, like we're together for the rest of our life. That's just how we roll. You know, and we make our own shoes. <laughs> <You know? laughs> no, that's a story. That's a story I often tell in the context. <laughs> Uh, of something else is that, you know, we, we all have these cultural assumptions, um, you know, which is something we've been touching on this whole conversation. But w- I remember having the opportunity to eat boshantong in Korea, which is dog meat stew. And it's it's not very commonly eaten anymore. It's usually older, middle-aged men. It sort of has this, these Viagra-like qualities. Um, and so these guys were talking about it, and I was a little bit affronted. And I was talking about how inhumane it was by American standards. You know, I was just trying to let them know how weird this was for me. And they, they sort of stopped me and said, okay, you know, we have this seasonal tradition that involves eating dog meat in Korea, but we think it's inhumane when you take grandma and ship her across town, right. um, and then visit her once a month. I mean, it's exactly what you're just talking about. And, you know, so I ended up, I ended up being humbled. I, you know, I started out being affronted and then I realized, yes, of course, this is, this is a thing. Koreans make sacrifices. They move grandma inside their home. And I, I think maybe as they become more modern and postmodern, they, there might be retirement homes in, in, in Korea. It's been a while since I've been there. But that's true. It's part of this compartmentalized life, you know, that we um, – and it, part of it is by necessity is that we no longer live in the village. And the job opportunity is in Seattle. We're going to go to Seattle, and we might only see our family even when we're young a few times a year. Um, and then it, then it carries over that, that it's, just, it's just more convenient to have grandma in the home. Uh, and it's just, it's life moves faster and we can't keep up with it. So we, we just compartmentalize everything and, and outsource it 
um, even within our own community. So it's it's an interesting thing to think about it, and it's something that travel forces one to think about quite often. Yeah. Have you ever had, uh, I think it's called Kui or Kukui. It's guinea pig in, in Peru. Yeah. Kui. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. So that's, I was, that was like, I don't know, a few years ago or something. I was, I was cruising around out there and I, that was something that struck me about culturally, just like the amount of intention and ceremony that goes around this, what Americans would think of like this disgusting, you know, Guinea pig that they're raising in their backyard, you know, but we just, they, they having some type of value, we can learn so much from each other culturally. They're like Americans aren't right. Peruvians aren't right. Like we're all have different ups and downs about our culture, but I think there's just having something sacred and special, you know, that's kind of like poo-pooed on in the culture that I come from. Like even saying the word sacred or special, that's like, mm-hmm. you know, like, oh, okay. All right. It's one of those, you know, like patch pant dreadlock kind of conversations, but it's like a lot of places we have that. And I think that, you know, just the ceremony, you know, like we don't, I don't see as much ceremony here, you know, yeah. is that, but I'm sure there, there are instances of that. Is that something you've thought about at all? Just like the, the power of that? Yeah, and, and even even just the role religion plays, even basic major religions. Um, I think that, you know America has sort of become post-religious, and I think they forget the non-religious function of religions. Um, and you go to a Muslim country, and just all the ways that all the non-religious ways that Muslim identity uh, suffuses the way people walk through the world. And that includes hospitality. I mean, there's, there's few places in the world more hospitable than Muslim countries because it's a, it's a, it's, it's sort of a, it's part of a belief system. You know, it's God wants you to be hospitable, not just be a nice person, be hospitable. It's like you take people in because that is an edict. And so I think in a post-religious culture like the United States, we, we assume that religion is always on the exact terms of the religion, and we forget the role that ritual plays in social and ethical um, and other contexts, even down to health. Mm-hmm. Um, and oftentimes the most positive aspects, and you know, it's easy, there's a lot of bad things that happen because of religion, but um, there, there's some, you go to a country, uh, Greek Orthodox, Sunni Muslim, uh, different kinds of Buddhist countries, and um, that ritualized aspect that, um, it just affects how people operate and it, it enhances people's lives. You know, it, it makes people pay more attention, uh, to being in the world. You know, it's not, we've sort of secularized that idea, but, um, so many great religions have, um, for all of the separate language of those religions, they have these rituals that help us pay attention. Um, they have all these metaphors that um, from a distance we take at face value and make no sense, but really they're about paying attention to the world and being a better person in the world. So um, it's fun to see. And part of my education, and actually it, it affected vagabonding, my first book, um, that there's a lot of, um, without being too heavily religious, there's a lot of religious philosophy in it that comes from a lot of different traditions um, because there's some very, very ancient teaching just about not seeing your wealth in, like the Buddha said, you know, if, um, you, you know, being upset because of lack of, I'm paraphrasing here, because of lack of material possessions is, is like getting upset because a mango tree won't bear oranges, you know. Hmm. I messed up that quote, but um, <laughs> there's, there's, there's very old wisdom that reinforces minimalism and altruism and other things that we strive for as mindful 21st century people. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that happened that's 
pretty much happened. There's like a, there's like a, a pattern with, with traveling for me. Like I'm, I'll go up and down of thinking this is stupid and ridiculous and I should just be digging in and growing roots someplace. And then there's other moments where like, this is the best thing ever. I'm growing so much. Like, you know, I don't want to do anything else. One of the things that's popped up out of that in the, in the darker moments is, um, the awareness that I can travel even without leaving my house. You know, there, mm. there's so much depth of travel that I can do in my body, in my mind, in reading, in, you know, exploring art. You know, have you, is that something that you've been cognizant of just traveling? That's not necessarily involving an airplane. Definitely. Definitely. And, um, I think we forget that sometimes. Um, of course in, in recent years, they've come up with the word staycation, which I have no problem with, which, which is sort of a goofy distillation of that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if travel, like my book vagabonding, it has some nuts and bolts advice, but it's also about the attitude of travel and that attitude doesn't need to be exclusive to travel. And so in a, in a certain sense, it's a way of seeing and it's a way of thinking and it's a way, and it's, it's a form of curiosity that reaches out. And if you're not in a position to literally travel, then you can do so figuratively. You can, you can read, you can, you can, um, engage, you know, you engage in, in your own environment with that same sense of wonder and curiosity as a new place. You can try to see your own home in a new way. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, you know, I, I think since, since the age of mechanical reproduction, um, we sort of look down our nose at, mediated mediated experience as a lesser form of experience in part because that's true you know you, it's there's one thing to watch a video about india and it's another thing to go to, to india but i think if you you can engage mediated experience with the openness of travel I, I, again i don't want to sound too i don't know what you said hippy dippy patchy pants <laughs> but uh um i think you can it, it, it's, it's a lesser form perhaps, but I think it connects to that overall attitude that you can just continue to feed your, um, your awareness and your curiosity. Um, even if you're not able to, to physically go to the other place, the other part of the world and hear it and smell it. Yeah. What are some things that pop out for you about your culture that you value as a product of being away from it? Oh, like American culture. Sure. Yeah. Um, so much, so much, actually. You know, I think, I think travel can imbue a sense of patriotism in Americans and not just, and in fact, I wrote about this in the same essay that I wrote about, you know, hearing James Brown in a hallway in, in a hotel in Syria. Mm. Uh, it's called Anthem Soul because, like, sort of the pride I felt in hearing James Brown was a very patriotic pride. It's like, yeah, this guy is representing my country. Yeah. Um, and I think it, it helps you appreciate what works about America, you know, um, <laughs> that, 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 um, uh, it's a pretty multicultural country where despite everything, people get along and people grow up with friends that look different and, 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 um, come from different backgrounds or religions. And it's a place where the, the roads work and you can have having just flown from a tiny airport to a tiny airport yesterday, um, where you can move around a lot in a big country. And, um, it's America is a country of ideals and it falls short of its ideals a lot. But I think, and there's sort of a false innocence to America, but I think it keeps America from getting too cynical in a sense that it allows America's idealism allows itself to keep trying to fit into that, into that, uh, that, uh, round hole of, 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 um, idealism. Hmm. And yeah, there's something I, I've become, 
you know, instead of a, a raw, raw flags and eagles uh, patriot, nothing against flags and eagles, um, or baseball or other man- manifestations of, of the country, which I like, I think you get a really intuitive sense of what's good about America. And, and you know, maybe Germans or, or Thais or wh- whoever else travels come, comes back with a better appreciation of their country. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like there's a, there's a sense with which America really works. You know, we, we're always... Every, every day is a disaster. You, know, you read headlines going back into the 90s and before, and it seems like there's always a crisis in the United States. But at the very essential level, there's a way at which America works. It's a healthy country, and until you leave it and come back and appreciate that, um, it, you don't have that, that sort of gut-level patriotism that comes with travel and, and appreciating that for all its faults, it's a country that works pretty well. Yeah. Yeah, I think being having the capacity to pack up a backpack, a back a backpack, a backpack and jump on a plane and go for a trip someplace for one month, two months or you know whatever you want to do. I think it's a really good indication of the level of control that you have in your own life. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I think that it's it's like that's one of the things we sometimes we think that because we have all this stuff and because we have this great job or we have this mortgage and we have like it's like the life looks perfect. Sometimes you can not realize that you're you're actually kind of enslaved, you know, you're actually in like wearing the golden handcuffs, you know, it's like, is that something that you've kind of been aware of, of like staying in this place of like, I can dig in, but I can also, I can also go. Yeah. I think that's something that I moved through pretty early. Like I sort of had that crisis before I had any money (laughs) or or a solidified domestic life. Um, where I really felt like between age 17 and 22 that I, that it was going to be, I was going to have a lot of anxiety if I didn't get out and travel while I was young. And I thought that I would just get it done and come back and then I could go on and have wear those golden handcuffs and be happy at the thought of having traveled the world when I was 20. Um, but I got past it. And, and, and since then, and then, you know, I got a house, I'm sitting in it right now about 11 years ago. And that has, slowed me down in a certain sense, but it's so rewarding. And so, again, I think we have an ongoing relationship between our settled life and our traveled life, or at least I do. Mm. And I think people who travel a lot come to that point that it's very few people who just wander with an open heart for seven years and feel great about it. I think eventually you you have to find a balance between a settled life and a more peripatetic one. Yeah. And, um, mine... Uh, I'm doing pretty good. But again, every, every year is a different set of, uh, of challenges and, um, what feels like a perfect balance when you're 34, by the time you're 38, you might have to readjust things and, and just sort of think of if you're still moving in the direction of your dreams and, and your best self. Hmm. Is there any comment, like speaking of, of, you know, having, and a lot of the interviews that I heard, I heard consistent questions. Is there anything that, that you don't really get asked that you would like to speak on or is that, has it been all been covered? <laughs> Everything. Um, I, I don't know. I, I have so many esoteric, uh, um, interests, <laughs> right. you know, that I, I would be perfectly happy if, if we had talked about, you know, for the last hour, if we had talked about like, grunge music between the years 1989 and 1993. I, I would have been perfectly happy to talk about that. Um, at the same rate, I really like talking about travel, you know, and, and just sort of ideas about how to live life simply because I enjoy engaging these ideas, even have, even having talked to them about them for a long time. Yeah. But I think part of, um, 
living an engaged life is also being the dork who can talk about grunge for an hour or get excited about, right. you know, bison habitats or whatever, uh, you know, excites you that week. Uh, so, so yeah, if we do this again, we can talk about something completely you know, fascinating and irrelevant to, uh, yeah. to I'll, lifestyle. I'll dig deep on bison habitats before the next conversation. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Uh, last final, final, final thing. Cause we're getting, we have like two minutes or something like that before I promise we'd, we'd be out of here. But, uh, I find the less I bring the better the trip or the less I need to throw away or send back. What's like, if you just have one, you know, whatever, whatever leaders, 30 liter, I don't actually know what a 30 liter backpack looks like, but a little backpack. Um, what are you, what are you putting in there? Like what's, what are the top three, top four, top, and just top things to have if you're going on a big trip overseas? Well, I, uh, you're speaking to a guy who went around the world with no luggage, right. uh, seven years ago. Um, just with, with a few things in my pockets. Um, oh, good. uh, and it's, it's so easy to cheat these days. If this was the 17th century, it would be completely different thing, but you take your smartphone and then that's like taking uh, 500 things with you. You know, that's your library. Um, that's your maps. Uh, that's your communication device. So, you know, I would have to take that. And actually, you know, I, I went to Idaho over the weekend and I took just a tiny little bag. Um, so probably, probably smartphone, toothbrush, socks, you know, that'd be my big three. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge believer in, in, uh, in that principle that you, that you don't need to take very much, that the world is an amazing place and why drag all this junk around when you can engage the world on its own terms. And so that's why in my book I say, just buy the smallest backpack as possible so you can discipline yourself into only taking what is essential. And even then most of that stuff probably is not essential. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. And then that baggage ends up being again, kind of to get all, all esoteric about it, but it's like the stuff that you bring becomes, things that you identify with. So the more clothes and style and all that stuff that you bring along with you, the more metaphoric baggage that you bring along with you as well. So as opposed to coming like, all right, you know, I'm doing this trip to, to be changed and to, you know, have get as much value out of it as I can. You're kind of like, okay, I'm going to stay inside my little space tube. Nothing wrong with either, but it, I think it just depends on what you want. I think if you really want to like dig in and get the value out of that culture, I'd be on the, the, the side of bring less, you know, and allow yourself to be. Absolutely. Keep your attention flowing outward, you know, and, and, and most of what you bring, it it provides some comfort, but often it's distraction as well. So cool, man. How do people learn more about you and find your stuff and all that stuff? I've had, Uh, you know, I found a lot of, got a lot of great value out of it. So thank you, man. Yeah, no, it's been fun to talk. Uh, Go to rolfpost.com. It's a great starting point. I have some social media, accounts, but I'm not always active on them. Uh, so rolfpost.com has, um, links to a lot of my stories, all of my books, a lot of travel advice, a lot of interviews with travel writers, a lot of weird esoteric stuff like essays about grunge between 1990, <laughs> 1993 and, uh, links to blo- to blogs of travel advice, links to blogs about going around the world with no luggage. There's just a, a wealth of information there and it's a good starting point. And there's a contact form if, if you want to get, get in touch. Cool brother. Thanks so much, man, for time and you know doing the work and all the things really appreciate it you bet good luck in the journey thank you sir all right we are over over and out can you put your video back on by chance i can i actually have to run because i have a five o'clock um interview cool sweet well then peace out i just wanted to say bye have like you know official goodbye but um thank you so much here i am appreciate it yeah (laughs) he didn't go away um i'll send you links to the thing and all that stuff when it comes out and uh thanks all right take care see you brother 
Align Podcast. Thank you once again so much for tuning into this podcast. If you guys want to show some support, show some love for what we're doing here, um, you can jump on the website, aligntherapy.com, A-L-I-G-N therapy.com. And then from there, uh, a couple things you can do, one of which you could actually donate through Patreon. There's a link on the right-hand sidebar of the blog and podcast page. Uh, you can utilize the Amazon affiliate link. Uh, anytime you or anybody you know buy some crap on Amazon, please and thank you. Bookmark that link. Every time you do it, we get something like 7% of your purchase and it helps support this show. It is awesome. So great. As well, something you could do that is ultra helpful if you or anybody that you know um, has ears and likes books, uh, tell them to check out the audibletrial.com slash align. That's A-U-D-I-B-L-E trial.com slash align. And then from there, that is, uh, you get a free audio book from Audible. They have something like, I don't know, a bajillion different titles to choose from. Uh, one that I would recommend that I got from them was Shantaram. I, it's a huge book and, uh, again, all free, no matter what size the book you get. And that got me through, I listened to that as I was traveling through Morocco and, uh, just really, really amazing website, uh, amazing service. Couldn't recommend it more. And, uh, it kicks us down some scratchola every time you guys utilize that free thing. Costs you absolutely nothing and you get a free audiobook and you support the show. Boom. Um, Thanks so much for reviews on iTunes. That's greatly appreciated. And thanks just in general for listening. Thanks for supporting. Thanks for for spreading the word. All right. I can't express enough how much I appreciate all that. If you guys ever have any questions or comments, you feel free to email me directly at Aaron at aligntherapy.com. And I would love to talk. All right. See you guys. Thank you for listening and remember to join the movement by subscribing to the podcast. If the information has been helpful, please share and leave your comments in iTunes. Aaron personally reads each one and it makes all the work worthwhile. Together, we will make a difference and continue to bring more powerful and inspiring messages to the world. Align Podcast.